Welcome to the Wanting to Wealthy podcast, where we approach financial education in unconventional ways. My name is Ashley Hogan, and if you are looking for a different path to reach your financial goals, you are in the right place. Let's get started. Before we get started, I am so excited to let you know that there are some new changes coming to the Wanting to Wealthy Patreon page. There will now be just two tiers. The $1 searcher level will give you first access to sign up for courses and discounts on all classes, courses, and materials. The $5 Voyager level is for those of you who are ready to build a community around your personal finances. As well as being eligible for promo codes and early access to all Wanting to Wealthy programs, Voyagers get exclusive voting power on podcast content and access to the private community. The private community is all about knowing you're not alone in your personal finance journey. Included in the private community is the ability to ask questions, get free printables, live events to work on your finances with others, and moral support. Okay, we are going to continue the conversation about housing that we started back in February. Um, This month, we're going to talk about generational shifts and uh, multi-generational living is what the majority of this is going to be about. Um, Multi-generational living is um, living with people from your family that are um, vertical in the generations. So this might be your children, you, and your parents. Um, This also could be with your uh, partner's family. Um, As opposed to extended family households where it's going to go horizontally. So this might be you and your aunt uh, and uncle and then your grandparents and maybe their siblings. So you get a lot more um, people as you're looking at that with a lot more depth of um, people either married or coming into the family than you would typically speaking in a multi-generational situation. So, um, so I'm going to talk mostly about multi-generational living. I want to look at the historical, uh, shifts that have happened throughout the years, kind of what led people to either live in a multi-generational household or not, um, and how that's shifted, um, in the most recent years, uh, specifically post-World War II. So um, I remember growing up that um, the idea of deadbeat children staying at home too long, and yes, I'm using air quotes right now, um, or the idea how you're not successful unless you're independent, again, air quotes. Um, And I really was thinking about like, where did that come from? Like, why do we think like that? Because if you think back to sitcoms from the um, 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, you see um, things like The Waltons or Full House, which was in the 80s and 90s, and now Fuller House, an extension of that, on Netflix, um, showing that it's okay to live in these multi-generational situations. And then on the flip side of that, you have these movies like, um, 
failure to launch, um, Kristen Wiig's character in Bridesmaids, or any show ever that kind of shows someone being less than because they're living in their mom's basement. And you've got both sides of the coin there. And so I just want to really kind of go into that. Because to me, I grew up in an interesting multi-generational situation in that my grandmother lived next door to us. So while we were not in the exact same house, and I also had a friend uh, when I was growing up that had the same situation. And my sister had friends um, that lived on a farm. And my husband lived um, on a farm and his family had more than one family member living in houses on the same or very close together properties. Um, And those are all forms of multi-generational living as well as living within the same housing structure, whether that be um, um, a grandparent in a singular room or a grandparent in a mother-in-law suite the situation is still the same. So I'm encompassing kind of all of those types of generational living. And um, really, it's only been post-World War II that a lot of this has cropped up, that the children have, that the parents have done something wrong if the children come back home after school, or that the children are not, and I'm saying adult children, are not doing something right if they come back home. And we saw a lot of this post the 2008 housing market crash. Um, But if you look at the generations prior to us, it was a very common thing to have multi-generations living in one household or in very close proximity for a number of different reasons. So um, super, super common all the way up through the 19th century. And some of those reasons uh, differed among groups, um, socioeconomic groups, as well as races. Um, Wealthy white Victorians did it because they um, really saw a lot of family value in having multi-generations in one household, though they still had things like nannies and stuff like that. Um, Farmers will do it to keep a farm running. So you'll see as the children grow them buying uh, houses or building houses to put on different parts of the farm. So everybody's still there and still continuing or several of them are still there continuing that farm. Um, even though some may move away, but that, that's super, that was super common. Um, emancipated African-Americans and immigrant and immigrants, a lot of them did it for financial reasons. They couldn't afford, um, another home. So many would live together. So then they were in much tighter quarters than say the, the wealthy Victorian families. Um, others do it for religious reasons. Uh, I included an entire article on religious reasons, uh, called key findings, how living arrangements vary by religious affiliations around the world. And it was really interesting to read that, um, but way more information than I can really get into this particular episode um, about what religion people were practicing 
and how that related to whether they were living multi-generationally or with extended family. And I didn't get into it completely, but I'm sure that there was a big um, discrepancy whether you were male or female within your religion and whether or not you were still living at home. Um, But that's a great article to read if you're interested in that. So um, specifically in the United States, the average has been pretty consistently up through the 19th century, about 20% of the population are living in some sort of multi-generational situation. Um, Most recently, these included the ones that I've already talked about, as well as elderly parents living with adult children and the children moving back in with the parents after um, college or something like that as an adult. Um, so post-World War II, of course, is when um, multi-generational living really shifted and it went down, 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 down all the way to about 12% of the U.S. population in the 1980s. Some of the reasons for the shift included the financial recovery people were experiencing from the Great Depression. Many lived together during the Great Depression and then we went through the war and as we were becoming more affluent, um, we were able to then have our own uh, individual homes. And then again, the introduction of the social security and pension programs. So social security and pension, the idea behind these are both that um, if someone's receiving social security, when before, when they retired, they didn't, you had a couple of situations you would work until you couldn't physically work anymore because maybe an injury or an illness took you out and then someone else typically a family member would need to take care of you or you'd work until you died and then when the social security system was put into place um it was meant to help you from the time you retired to the time you died which when it was first established was for about three years now we have a whole host of different things that i can talk about with the social security administration now because we live longer and we're trying to retire earlier and we have had so many shifts in the way people are employed and what they do um, at an employer and how how long they stay at an employer and how well the employer takes care of them after they retire that um, has shifted all of this. Um, Secondarily to that was the pensions. Pensions are not super common anymore, but um, for example, my parents uh, in their most recent union contract uh, several years ago now, their pensions were frozen at what they were at the time, shifting to spending more money on the 401k. The difference is, is that the pension puts all that financial reliability and um, financial means on the employer. Um, because if the employee gives them so much time, so in my parents' example, their age plus the years of service at their employer needed to equal the magical number 75. When I was working in corporate America, it was the same thing. I had to reach 75 when those two numbers were combined. If I reached that magical 75 number, then the company would pay a pension from here until I passed away. Or in some cases, 
um, they would give survivor benefits. So in the example of my grandparents, my grandfather passed away while he was still working, but he was working where he was developing, um, where he was earning a pension. And when he earned that pension, but passed away before he retired, my grandmother got part of that pension as a survivor benefit as long as she was alive. So if you go back to what I was saying with the social security, um, people are living longer, which means now there's a lot more financial risk to having a pension system for your employees, coupled with the fact that employees are not staying at a company for 20, 30, 40 years, the way that they were two generations ago. Okay. Um, so employers are shifting to a 401k system. What that does is it removes their responsibility, takes the burden off of them, but it forces that burden onto the employee and the employee has to be responsible for that. That means that the employee needs to make good choices for their investments. That means the employee needs to know what they're getting, um, how that's going to affect them in retirement, when can they do take retirement, and if they move, they need to know how to move that money with them so they don't lose track of it. Um, so, sorry, small tangent there, but that all comes back down to um, reasons that the multi-generational um, numbers were dropping and got so low as at about 12% in the 1980s. And now it's coming right back up again. And it's right back up at about 20% of the population living in a multi-generational situation. Um, I am certain that part of that reason is the differences in our retirement plans now with Social Security not being as um, readily available for people who are going to retire in 20, 30 years. And... Um, with the lack of pensions existing now, um, as well as things like uh, nursing homes, retirement homes, things like that can be very expensive if you haven't planned for them. And um, so going back and living with a uh, an adult child makes more financial sense um, than potentially taking any life savings you have, or if you're in a situation where you didn't have, say, a home to sell or something like that, now you just simply can't afford to live in a retirement community or um, a, a nursing community, depending on what your, your goals were. I did also notice that when I was doing my research, um, of those people living in multi-generational living, just like what I was seeing with rental versus home buying numbers last month, um, white people have the lowest number compared to other races of that 20% of the U.S. population, only about 15% of that was white. Um, others were um, actually Asian cultures at closer to 30%, and then both Hispanic and Black cultures at... Um, 25%. Uh, and I would be curious to see what, what the, the reasons are, um, for living in a multi-generational situation. Um, not necessarily based on your skin tone, but, uh, 
whether there is a a financial impact with that, whether it's a religious impact, whether it's a cultural impact. Um, so if you have experience with those things, please um, DM me at wanting to wealthy on Instagram and and I would love to to learn about your experience. Um, so looking at all of, the different reasons that someone may or may not live in a multi-generational situation, whether they're asking to or not. And I'll give you another example. Um, when I was growing up, grew up right next to my grandmother. That was great. We did it for her benefit because my grandfather passed away at such, such a young age and she really needed help. She lived in a farmhouse until about 10 years before she passed away. So it's just her on roughly two acres. She had animals. That's a lot to do by yourself. Um, so my dad, one of her five children moved back with her. We subdivided the property and um, lived on the back half of that um, property. So myself, my brother, my sister, and, um, my dad, and my stepmom all lived and helped take care of my grandmother from time to time. Um, my uncles were more present towards the end of her life, um, with her needing to have help. Uh, she ended up with dementia. So her needing to have help, um, on more day-to-day -day tasks. So we went from living in a multi-generational situation where we were two houses right next to each other to her house actually being sold. And um, my uncle lived with her until she was unable to be cared for safely. She went into a memory care facility. Um, to when I was... So I graduated college in the fall of 2008. And um, so I was in a situation where many, many other people were, where we couldn't um, get a job. We were underemployed or not employed at all. And we had student loans coming due and we ended up back at home. Um, I did end up getting my master's degree while I was living with my parents and I was living with my parents in an RV. So there was still a form of multi-generational living. And I was one of those adult children coming back to live with my family. But for me, it was a financial situation. I really needed that. And um, now we live in a household with another couple, um, which works well for us for the same benefits I'm going to talk about here in a second, um, all the way up to swinging back the other direction and having my parents come live closer to us so we can uh, have some of the costs uh, and benefits associated with this multi-generational living because right now to see my parents, I have to drive 45 minutes. I don't want to drive 45 minutes. I do that multiple times a week. So moving them closer is a benefit to us and it's a benefit to them. So um, we get to go back into that idea of multi-generational living. So in my lifetime, I've been in three separate backtrack. <laughs> when I went to graduate school in Colorado, I then came back and um, I lived at my aunt's house for a while. So in my lifetime, I have lived in three multi-generational situations and one extended family situation 
where more than one of us were living uh, from the standard nuclear family of parents and underage children only in the same close proximity. Um, and part of my reasons were financial. Uh, part of my reasons are relationship-wise now. Uh, part of our reasons were helping my grandmother and helping my parents with us just being able to walk up to my grandmother's house. Um, for me, it's a relationship choice at this point, uh, as well as a financial choice. But uh, so, so in conclusion, some of the benefits to living in a multi-generational situation include a lower cost of living for all parties because you can share expenses of the mortgage payments, the property taxes, large household items like a fridge or stove or a washer or dryer going, um, going out. Now you can share those. Um, you can also share expenses of things like, uh, lawn care, whether you both now don't have to own a lawnmower because you have one lawn instead of two, or your lawns are right next door to each other. Um, or you used to pay for a landscaper because you can't, you, you didn't have the time to get it done. And now your retired parents are living near you and they have the time and the need and the want to do it. And so now you're not paying for that expense. Um, another one might be lower daycare uh, or after school costs. This one was a huge factor that uh, was a benefit to my parents, though not the main reason we moved in right next to my grandparents, and um, has been a benefit to me because of my parents' schedule, though they're not retired yet. Um, I don't have to pay for childcare, and I know that that saves me hundreds of dollars a week, um, let alone if they live closer to me. Um Lower costs in home maintenance as well. Uh, so if you've got to repaint the house or re-roof the house, now you've got more incomes helping to um, lower that cost. Uh, shared household responsibilities that can reduce the costs of things like um, a landscaper I already talked about, uh, a cleaner if you don't have time to clean because you and your significant other are both at home uh, at work full time, but your mom enjoys cleaning, dusting, things like that makes it easier. You might not have to pay for a cleaner or you might have a cleaner house than you would otherwise have. Um, also, maybe the the cost of running through a drive through for dinner. So that has implicit um, benefits in that if someone's at home cooking, you're not running through a drive through So you're not wasting the fuel to go through the drive through um, You can better vote with your dollars on what kind of food you want to eat. Um, you get a better quality food. You get less expensive food when you're buying it, when you're making it at home. And um, you get healthier food typically, which means that you have fewer long-term health issues because you're eating at home because we're all busy and sometimes we got to go through the drive-through but if there's somebody at home that can make dinner that makes it that much easier um, another one is you get to have strong relationships um, with your extended or um, multi-generational family uh, there's been some studies that say that kids do better in school if they have a grandparent living with them. Maybe that's because they have uh, an extra set of adult eyes. Maybe that's because they have someone who can spend more time with them on homework, 
things like that. Uh, and then lastly, one that I wasn't expecting was that there is an increased home security because the house is less likely to be unoccupied, which makes sense just from my situation post-pandemic. Um, I can count on one hand the number of times that all the people in my house have been away from my house at the same time. There's usually someone that's at home. So um, I didn't think about it, but maybe you don't need to pay for a home security system um, or your house is just not looked at as a potential for burglaries or something like that because um, there's someone there more often than not. Um, but with every benefit, there are always drawbacks. Um, this might not be the right situation for you and your family. And your family, in this case, I've been talking about um, the people that you've grown up with as your parents, as your siblings, as your aunts and uncles, as your grandparents, um, blood or not. But it's still a choice that has to be made. Uh, for example, I live with my best friend and her husband. We are not biologically related, um, but we get to appreciate a lot of the benefits um, that come with this from a roommate perspective, which next month I'll talk about roommates. Um, and so stay tuned on the roommate situation. But there's still things that have to happen that may or may not make this the right option for you um, and your family. And so some of those might be simply that you have less privacy. Um, if good boundaries are not set with you and your family, um, there can be just less privacy issues, uh, or excuse me, less privacy in general, whether that be that you're in a smaller home um, and people have to share a bedroom so then they don't get their personal space, or whether the boundary hasn't been set that only these people go into this bedroom or go into the mother-in-law suite or whatever, or that you need to knock first. Um, so with the less privacy thing and the boundaries also means that there's an increased need for communication uh, as a group, uh, especially with the adults, but I highly encourage the children to be involved as well uh, in that communication piece. So everybody's on the same page. You don't want mom bringing home um, pizza when grandma's made a dinner, but grandma didn't know that mom was bringing home pizza and mom didn't know grandma was being bringing home dinner. And meanwhile, um, dad paid the mortgage, but didn't pay the insurance because he thought grandpa was paying the insurance. And so you can see where, where communication is a huge um, factor when you get more and more people living together. Um, you could have issues with moving, especially if um, one part of the family wants to move or change the living situation and the other part of the family wants to stay and may or may not be able to afford to take over that living situation alone. Um, potential legal situations, where I would see this would probably be in the situation of a parent um, having a child, an adult child, move in with them uh, to act as a caregiver. Um, and then the situation happens where the parent passes away, but the other adult children um, 
are not on the same page communication wise with who gets the house, things like that. Maybe the person who had moved in uh, had sold their home to help take care of their family member. And now that their family member is gone, the other people in the family want to sell the home and now they don't have a place to live. So uh, potential legal situations. So my answer for potential legal situations is always contracts. Contracts keep honest people honest. They set really good expectations and that way everybody knows what's happening before, especially if you lose a family member, before we're in a situation where we should be grieving and instead of grieving, we're dealing with really high emotions in a situation where we could have figured it out when the emotions weren't as high. So contracts are your friend. Um, And then lastly, those who are introverted may not thrive in a home with a whole bunch of people. Um, especially if good boundaries haven't been established. So, uh, I'll get into this more next month, uh, with the roommate, um, episode, but what I want you to take away, even with the introvert, uh, thing is space. (laughs) And that might be, um, physical space. That might be, space outside. That might be just developing good boundaries, but it's something that may uh, need to be addressed, especially if many people in the home are extroverted and somebody else is introverted um, and that person needs more alone time. They need a place where they can be alone. So um, just like last month, I've given you a whole bunch of different scenarios, a lot of information, a lot of different things to think about. So within this, um, we'll have show notes from the articles that I referenced when building this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Wanting to Wealthy podcast. I would love to continue the conversation on Instagram at Wanting to Wealthy. Please DM me with comments, questions, and future podcast ideas. If you found value in the podcast and think of someone who would feel the same way, please share it with them. Until next time.